So we're now on part three of Ask You For Anything. Uh, went through Twitter. Unfortunately, some some questions were lost on uh, Blog Talk Radio, which that that site's become total garbage from what I can tell. Uh, it would take me some time to figure out the changes they've made and why they've made them and how to how to work with them. Um, but uh, so the next question, so we left on uh, what differentiates my work from evidence-based work, uh, which is really important to listen to. I, I think it's an important concept in general. Uh, it, it can help you to look at different claims in different ways to, to see why they're making their claim. Um, ev- evidence-based just means they're stopping at the first level of science, which is observation, and they're not moving forward. Uh, the, and if you do this, you could increase disease state if you don't know what the disease state is. Because if your goal is to lose fat loss and this evidence says, well, this is what you do to lose body fat or just weight, then that evidence might also mask that you're making people more sick as they lose the weight. Uh, you, you can't just be evidence-based. You need to go much deeper. And especially right now, um, because one claim I make, and this requires a lot of explanation, so uh, don't expect to get get it all right now. And if you think I'm full of crap, that's completely fine. Um, but but it's an important point. I don't think anything health or nutrition related or even sports related is currently within the foundations or framework of science yet. Um, and, and this is very, very important. And what one thing that comes out of that, it not being a science yet, this is what I would call the anti-science period. This is before science. This is all the chaos that happens before a true science congeals. And in that position, every idea is actually worth listening to. So even the evidence-based position, even though I think it's wrong and I have my reasons for thinking it's wrong and I have my reasons for thinking it's extremely lazy and potentially irresponsible, it's still an important part of this anti-science period. And as you can tell, being in this period too long is not a good thing. And unfortunately, we've been in this anti-science state when it comes to health and nutrition and exercise for well over 100 years now, almost 120 years. Um, well, and, and one problem with that, especially in this situation, is you're directly affecting the quality of people's life. So the fact that chemistry lingered around in an anti-science state for a few hundred years is completely fine because we weren't really affecting we weren't making anybody's quality of life worse by not knowing. But with health, it's very important because you might be making people more sick and diseased without knowing it. Um, so I think it's very important. I don't think there's a science of health yet. So health science is a nonsensical term at the moment. Nutrition science is a nonsensical term at the moment, as is exercise science is a nonsensical term. They they're participating in aspects of science but it is not a science as a framework yet and that requires a lot of explanation and you probably think i'm crazy but once you hear the full explanation or read the full explanation it'll make complete sense um 
and, and for that matter, in Western medicine, part of the confusion we see is we think that medicine is part of a science of health. Well, there's no science of health and medicine can't be a science of health or a part of it. But what medicine is, is a science of alleviating and mitigating symptoms. Now, if you look at medicine in that regards, medicine is a science and it is specifically the science of mitigating symptoms or eliminating symptoms that has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with longevity. It has nothing to do with quality. Well, it has everything to do with quality of life because if you have a lot of symptoms because you're sick and you take these drugs, they will alleviate the symptoms and you'll feel better mentally even if your body is getting more sick. So Western medicine is only the science of alleviating symptoms. Now, once you box it in that way, it helps to explain why this confusion around alternatives exists and why unfortunately we have to accept it. So if, if somebody wants to go to Western medicine to cure themselves or to make themselves more, or Eastern medicine, I'm sorry, and they want to rely on herbs and these other unfounded traditional methods, we have to actually listen to those and take them seriously in the health in the context of health and curing disease. Because at the moment, we don't know what disease is. We don't know what's causing it. Well, I claim I do. And my book, I, my book is trying to lay the, found, the first foundations of science for nutrition, health, exercise. And I know that's a lofty goal, but you know, what's the point of doing it if it's not a lofty goal? And so in that, if medicine wants to try to put itself on a footing with health, it has to legitimately accept and listen to the alternatives. But if medicine wants to confine it to the science that it is highly effective in, which is mitigating symptoms, then it can make truth claims that the others can't. No Eastern medication has ever eliminated symptoms reliably like Western medication does. And that's fine. Sometimes you, you might feel so sick that you need to alleviate the symptoms so that you can get on track to cure yourself. So this isn't to say Western medicine is bad. Western medicine can be used for bad reasons. But Western medicine as a science is very well defined as alleviating symptoms. And sometimes alleviating symptoms is really important. And sometimes it's all that we have the knowledge to be able to do so and once you cast it in that guise you can have a different relationship with western medicine you don't need to turn your back on it completely you need to understand what it's a science of and once you do you can understand when it's appropriate to use it uh, so this is a long rant on evidence-based stuff but i think it's really important uh, this is a question about body AI and flag colors on the eating schedule and if you should be trying to make them all go bright green. Uh, lighter is better is all I can say. You might have a schedule situation where you cannot achieve optimal and that's fine. If all the flags are red, if, if you can arrange them in a way that still works for you and your schedule where they become orange, that's better. But if 
the red situation is the the best situation for your schedule in your day, like leave it. The si- the system is designed to take care of the worst case scenarios. And if your day forces you into a worst case scenario, that totally fine. Don't don't worry about it. It doesn't mean anything bad. It just means that your your schedule is one that would be really hard to work with without a software companion. It, it would be very difficult. Uh, so don't worry about the color of the flags. Your, your goal is if you can make the flags lighter in color from red to green uh, that fits your schedule and your day, great. If you can't, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's a basically a repeat question of deadlifts and squats. Um, is there a way to get over it? So this is the drum geek. Uh, is there a way to get over the common cold quicker by utilizing dietary tweaks or exercise? As far as I know, no. Um, and there's no reason to believe that there should be. But I have definitely changed my my thinking on exercising while sick. Um, I, I can't actually find a biological reason why you should forgo exercise other than really rampant bacterial infections uh, would be one. Viral infections that are equivalent that are really rampant, I mean, you're probably going to die from anyway. So exercise if that's what gives you the greatest joy in life before you potentially die um but so like strep throat is one where i wouldn't work out it's it's highly rampant your immune system needs to be attacking it as as constantly as possible but even then i i believe there's some gray area depending on how you're going to work out um but as far as dietary tweaks and whatnot i really I really know of nothing to speed up the recovery process. Um, maybe one day that will come into the purview of my my framework and I'll be able to answer that question. But at the moment, I, ha- I have nothing for that. Uh, this is also from the Drum Geek. I've also heard my friends tell me not to eat after 7. They say the body is shutting down to sleep, so you shouldn't make it do all the work digesting food. And uh, he asked if I have any good science-based retort for that. Well, I wrote two books. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be an ass, but I cover a ton of science in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's bullshit, to put it bluntly. I mean, there's no... I would love to... The, the position you're in is, look, the science leads to the fact that whenever you eat, the body's processing it. And it only processes it for a limited amount of time. And during that processing, it, it doesn't, that's like saying, well, you shouldn't eat during the day because you have to do mental activities and you have to work and you have to work out. And eating would take energy away from that, which means you can't really do it that effectively. So then you shouldn't eat during the day. Well, the same argument applies for when you go to bed at night. So you shouldn't eat during the day. You shouldn't eat when you go to sleep. When should you eat? The, the body is designed to handle these situations. And when you're sleeping, there's not a ton of difference metabolically to when you're awake. The body works the same way. It goes through the same rhythms. It has the same uh, mitochondrial activity. It has the same metabolic activity. 
base metabolic activity. What differs is you're just not moving. The body's actually in as good or better situation to digest and utilize the food in whatever ways it needs to. It won't be influenced by your your uh, movement habits during the day or whatever your stress habits. Um, so, so there's really no good argument for that. I mean, whether you eat in the middle of the night or not, your body is still running through its metabolic processes. And, you know, why is seven o'clock at night the good cutoff? Mm, I don't know. You know, if you eat a carbohydrate meal, it's gone and f- pretty much absorbed. If, if you were to have a shaker, whatever, whatever it's, it's absorption it's taxing absorption is gone by the time you're, you're going to bed. If you go to bed at 10, a lot of it's ended up, um, in the part of the ileum where it's more passive digestion effects that are going on. So your, your nervous system isn't being taxed. Your metabolism isn't being taxed because if you weren't absorbing food from your intestinal tract, you would have to be mobilizing it from other storage areas, which requires energy. So there, there's no way to get around the fact that your body has to do work at night, whether you're eating or not. Um, so, like, I just don't really know what argument they could give to support that. Uh, their argument's very poor, as you can tell. Well, if it's because it's too much metabolic work, then we should definitely shouldn't eat during the day because we have a lot more metabolic work we're trying to go on. Um, when the body sleeps, it's not shutting down. Your brain shuts down, um, in a sense— and really what's going on during sleep isn't just recovery of the body. I mean, recovery is happening when you're awake. It happens throughout the night. It, it's not affected by whether you're asleep or awake. What's going on in sleep particularly are two things. If you're on a carbohydrate-based diet, then one thing that's happening during sleep is that glycogen reserves in the brain are being refilled. So from that sense... And that's a very important part of the sleep process if you're on a carbohydrate-based diet. Your your brain requires glycogen, and the brain actually stores glycogen, and it has to recompensate that glycogen at night. So if that's the case, you should be eating before bed because you'll have a release of carbohydrates longer from your digestive tract that can help to facilitate the recompositioning of glycogen in the brain. Now, the other purpose of sleep is for the brain to, and I talked about this in part one, is for the brain to basically cull all of the noisy data. Uh, So through the day, your brain recorded a ton of stuff. If you never stop during the day to recall certain pieces of information, then it will not be held in the brain and the brain eliminates it at night during sleep. And they've shown this in countless animal studies. And it actually explains a lot of things we see uh, with humans across various sleep patterns and various dietary variations with various sleep patterns. Um, That's why if if you're on a ketogenic or carnivore diet and you're not heavily exercising, you actually don't need as much sleep. And even if you are heavily exercising, you still don't need as much sleep. Um, because those processes can actually be accelerated if the brain's not also trying to recompensate glycogen source. Um, so, th- so this argument of don't eat, don't eat before bed is just completely stupid. Um, th- there's no other way, uh, other way to put it. It's, and 
let me let me soften that a bit in the stupidity comment because the people who are saying it aren't stupid. It, it's logical. It has a logical structure to it. Um, the problem is it's it's nothing more than a postulate. And so what you need to do from the postulate, and this would be the way to talk about it, say, look, that that's a postulate. And it, it's actually a good one. I would say if we knew nothing about the body, that's not a bad postulate. The body's resting at night. Uh, we don't want to overtax it. We want to let it do whatever it does at night. But we know what it does at night. So you need to now refine your postulate to either incorporate what we know or you need to abandon your postulate. And, and that's how to kind of talk to him about it and say, and you know what, you're free to believe that, um, you can believe fallacious things. There's, that's one of the beautiful things about, um, I I think particularly the United States, the United States has one of the most robust freedom of speech laws in the world. And what comes along with that is the freedom to believe as you will, and you can believe fallacious things. But what you can't do is push your beliefs onto other people as if they are facts. It, you need to just, it just needs to be pointed out that it's a postulate. And at that point, it's completely incumbent upon them to try to defend it in a real scientific way and to defend it against known science. And then at that point, it might be worth having a conversation. And these ideas that I, I say are stupid, I'd say they're stupid in the context of what we know fully in science, and not everybody knows that. Um, so, so logically, it's, it's just wrong. It's just a postulate or a hypothesis, and a lot more work needs to go into recommending it. And I think that's what our current society is so poor at, is we think, well, it sounds like a good idea, therefore, it's likely to be true. And that is the worst worst possible way to operate in the world and it is the worst possible way to give advice um believe it or not in san francisco i i ran into many many life coaches there were many life coaches and they'd taken the classes to get like life coaching certifications which apparently i i think mean nothing um because many of them and this was the thing that amazed me they had no money they had no relationships that were successful. They often had somebody supporting them, most of the time their parents because they were really young people. And they were being life coaches to tell people how to become independent and grow financially and to have better, healthier relationships. And like, you know, in, in that instance, what you have is somebody who had who's trying to use a set of good ideas that they learned somewhere else, but they don't even know if they work for themselves. And even if they, in that scenario, you would think they would want to and need to apply them to themselves first so that they have some evidence, and this goes back to earlier conversation, they at least have some evidence that something could be done with these things. But instead, it's taught and it's learned on that, well, that makes sense. Therefore, it's likely to be true, and I'm justified in trying to get other people to do it. And you can find that everywhere. Uh, somebody that I used to help coach who now is is some sort of a life coach, health coach kind of thing, uh, I, 
I severed ties with them because they went to this health self-help seminars and they said, oh, like I understand. I've, I've been learning deep intimate physics of, of the universe. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like quantum, that's it's never been in your purview of interest and it doesn't seem to match your skill set. So what are you talking about? It's like, oh, well, you know, the law of universal attraction, like attracts likes. That's why if we have positive attitudes, we get positive things back. I'm like, okay, it kind of makes sense. Like you can make some sense of it, but there's only one physical law that acts with like attracts like, and that's mass attracts mass, which is gravity. Every other physical law particularly the ones that we interact with most of most of the time during the day is the law that opposite that like repels like so your hypothesis doesn't fit with the world you've got to abandon it at that point or operate knowing that you believe something that's false and at that point it's your responsibility to no longer promote it um, but that's not what happened. Uh, we just ended up having a falling out over that. And they still consider themselves a master of physics. And they're telling people that all they need to do is have positive thoughts to get a bunch of money. Um, so you could see why I would distance myself from individuals like that. Uh, let's see. So total depravity, perhaps some recommendations on the lowest impact, most effective High intensity interval training workouts for people with bad lower backs. Uh, bicycling comes to mind. It's always my my favorite. You can usually, I usually recommend using a a correct bicycle saddle. That's the seat. I used to be a cyclist. Uh, some of you know back in my uh, late teens and early twenties. And the saddle is incredibly important. The saddle can help get you into the correct position uh, so that your back's aligned correctly and can help to prevent any back problems. A lot of cyclists might not realize this actually have back problems because of the positions they're forced to put themselves into. But if you're on a stationary bike with a good saddle, you can put yourself into an ideal position and use your legs effectively. Uh, So I would say cycling is always the one that comes to mind. Uh, it, it has, uh, I mean, I, I might be biased rowing. I always enjoyed rowing machines. Uh, those are relatively low impact and they get the whole body involved. Uh, but again, you need to focus on your back during, during that, which isn't too difficult to do running. I'm never a fan of running, although wind sprints, I am a fan of, and those shouldn't put any stress on your back if you're if you're doing them correctly i mean if if you have back problems there's a reason you have back problems now those reasons could be infinitely varied you could have had surgery you could have steel rods in your back you could have had um, some of the vertebra fused in your lower back Uh, you could have collapsed discs but there's if if it's something non-surgical related and so collapsed discs would fit under this there's a reason that you have back trouble and it would be better to try to address that. Now, while you're addressing that, like I understand you want to use hit some sort of hit exercise that puts the least amount of stress on it. Um, but, but you also want to address why you're having the back issues, but cyc- cycling is a good one that I would highly recommend. Uh, Giuseppe di Lala, di Laia, maybe, uh, again, for everybody, I, 
I apologize if I completely butcher your name. Uh, I'm trying not to. But he says, uh, loves Shockwave and also the Bench Challenge workout protocol. Do I have more workouts available following those strategies? Um, I do not at the moment, but that's one of the things I want to add into Body AI is a structured system that actually will build workouts for people uh, for various exercise or performance goals. Uh, it, in one regard, it's not technically too difficult. Um, what'll be in another regard, it has some technical difficulties. So anyway, uh, I don't, but I, I will very soon have a system that just makes you a custom one anyway. So it doesn't matter what I have. It's what I can do. Um, also, what are your thoughts on full bodies training three to four times a week using shockwave or bench challenge protocols? Uh, I using full body workouts three to four times a week. Um, under Shockwave, mm, could could actually be a good paradigm as long as you're eating correctly for those for that exercise paradigm. Um, whole body workouts in general, they're they can they're they're effective for certain goals. Um, they're going to be more tuned to endurance goals and uh, strength endurance goals. And part of that reason is you you devastate your glycogen levels more quickly when you're using the whole body all the time. And you also would need to increase your protein intake somewhat um, because. You have, you do have protein storage in the body. It's called the splachnic bed, and but it has a limited capacity. So that's one reason training splits work so well. And if you don't understand how the body's synthesis curves mix with everything, um, then though that body part split training actually works pretty well with that because the way we we typically eat protein now does not match the synthesis curve. Uh, like I said in part one, those synthesis curves peak maybe five hours and sometimes later after the workout. Now, a, a lot of times people are not eating their protein needs where they're highest during that period. Now, one one way that can become mitigated is that when you had, say, that protein shake post-workout or some other protein source, that really high intense level of amino acids doesn't go to the muscles it actually goes to the splachnic bed. And then the splachnic bed will release enough amino acids later to try to help match the synthesis curve or help match the availability of amino acids to match the synthesis curve. So if you have a body part split training, then the, the protein storage can do a pretty good job of always picking up the slack to make sure that you get maximum synthesis curve or you get maximum amino acids available for the synthesis of that's uh, one, the, the maximized synthesis. Uh, a problem with whole body workouts and why they're not as effective at gaining mass is twofold. One, the splachnic bed cannot keep up with those needs for the entire skeletal muscle system needing to be, needing to be supplemented with stored protein. And another is, 
we don't understand how we should be eating protein to optimize for full body workouts. So that's the reason they're not as effective for, for various goals like muscle building as we might have previously thought that they should be equivalent. I mean, those are the reasons. So with the analytic engine in body AI, you can, you can actually build it. Well, it can actually build diet plans to help to make full body training sessions more effective. Um, it, it would take a lot of work on paper, but in, in that system, it can balance things out and help your protein reserves to always be as available and to eat in such a way and to even recommend protein types so that you can try to match the body matches as closely as possible amino release to maximum uh, protein synthesis. Uh, so that was all of these answers have been long winded. That's another one. And let's see. This is a question about a specific device. Uh, these devices out there like Lumen, which measure if your body is more of a fat burning mode or carb burning mode, any chances data. Uh, I, so this is from Kyle. And yeah, I wanna use devices like that. Well, maybe not that one in particular. I, I don't know what it's measuring. Being in fat burning mode versus carb burning mode, it's probably uh, measuring the respiratory quotient is my guess. I'm not going to click on the link right now. Um, but then also the data that I take in needs to be pertinent. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, if in body AI, an interesting thing is if you know enough about a person's day and their diet and their exercise, then you can predict what the respiratory quotient at any period of time is going to be. So where this would be useful is to fine tune the system to you. But unfortunately, it's not something that you would need to use long term. And it would help you understand yourself enough to, well, you wouldn't have to understand yourself enough. If this data went in, the system could tell you, look, you're not putting out enough effort at this time. You said, it's, you said you're doing extreme intensity, but like you're not. Um, so some of this equipment is like very useful for the fine tuning for you. And then some of it's completely useless. I, I mean, this looks like it, it might have potential use and I would love to get that data in. There's um, continuous glucose monitoring systems um, I've, I've talked to manufacturers of those devices before to try to find some open source way to get that data into the software. Uh, there's HIPAA compliance problems at the moment, which is why they can't give access to that, that data, even to the user. Um, so, so yeah, I want to incorporate devices very definitely. And I also want to do it in a way that doesn't put financial encumbrance on people who really need the devices. So for example, a continuous glucose monitoring system, if I can get one developed where that meets entertainment needs, which is possible, can actually ship those out to people. So essentially you'd pay a deposit, I could ship it out. The sensors have to be bought so the the sensors do not affect the device. They're, they wouldn't in, They wouldn't involve any 
type of medical issues as far as medical contamination. So you would buy you would buy the sensors or the sensors would be shipped to you with the device. You would use it for two weeks. Body AI would get that information or maybe you'd use it for a month and then you send the device back. We don't need the sensors. You can throw those away. So that way it and you whatever the deposit is for the device, you get that money back. So you're never out of pocket for some of these expensive devices that actually do give good information, but yet you still have the benefit of using these devices. Um, a lot of things like uh, Fitbits, that information's total dog shit. Um, and, and you can even look at Fitbits been spending, they, they actually, it's, as far as I know, uh, and I haven't talked to anybody on the data side of Fitbit in a couple years. I, they, they left the company, so I don't know what's going on in their, their development house anymore. But they were shifting away from trying to find correlations in the data to health recommendations for people because they just weren't getting it. It, it turned out to be total crap. It doesn't matter how many steps you take. It doesn't matter what you record. They just couldn't tell you anything useful. So most of their software development has gone into how do we how do we leverage this information to sell people things, um, which of course should should make anybody sick. And I I cannot say what's been going on there the last few years. Like I said, the the person I knew who was working there left the company. So maybe they went back to a shift to try to figure stuff out. I guarantee it's just money thrown out the window because they. W- they will not be able to find strong correlations and they've discovered that themselves and a lot of these companies have so what they have to do then is spend money on figuring out how to keep you engaged with the device and then eventually they'll be selling your data to a third party to profit off of you you just become a profit machine um, with no positive result for you uh, you've got a device that told you you walk 10,000 steps well what did that mean biologically? Like body AI, if you just put in the into the system that you walk a certain time during the day, it will give you way more information than Fitbit ever can because they never stop to sit down and try to come up with a mathematical model of the human body that covers all aspects of the evidence that we see from fat, sick people to high-performance gold medal athletes and everything in between. Uh, you know that's not their goal and big data can never solve that problem and i'm not saying i've solved it completely but without the foundation there's no way to then tweak the system within what we know works to expose other areas where the framework is deficient Um, so until one of these companies sits down and decides to do that um, which i'm not saying is impossible uh, for me, I'm in a unique situation where I have a collection of skills and a collection of experiences that allowed me to do that. And, you know, the, the time invested is literally half of my, more than half of my life, the last 25 years of my life. And along that journey, you know, I learned physics, I learned a lot of mathematics, I learned a lot of computer science, I uh, learned a lot about a statistics, that's a part of physics. Um, I also read a lot of research and continually accumulated research about the human body and metabolism. 
I applied that information to myself. Then I started applying that information to everyday people. And then I was able to apply all of that information to elite level, to amateur athletes for all kinds of various goals. So I'm in a very unique position where I have 25 years of experience, like experience in the real world with people. I have formal training in developing software systems and algorithms and modeling complex physical systems. Uh, I've, I've had real world experience that I once had to do thermal modeling on this new type of um, internal combustion engine, which I still think is miraculous. I'm, unfortunately, the, the inventor was not very fiscally savvy and did not get the project launch. Um, but it, it was amazing. So, you know, I, I've had real world work in that realm as well. And I myself have gone through several different f- categories of physical performance and physical shape and have improved my health, health in a certain way. So, and I've developed algorithms for all kinds of computer systems and I'm a good programmer. So I ha- I'm in this very unique situation um, where it made it possible for me to do this. Um, but for other companies, they could obviously achieve this much faster if they hired the right group of people who could communicate effectively amongst each other. So it's not that they couldn't do it. It's that they think if they accumulate enough data, the answer will just fall out or one of their artificial intelligence algorithms will just figure it out. Well, those things still have to be trained. So they have to be trained on what it is they're trying to figure out. And they may figure out patterns that lead people to becoming more sick over time. Um, So that's why this underpinning framework is so, so vastly important, especially at this stage in history when so many people are becoming sick and getting sicker. Um, Wow, there's a long rant on devices. Apparently, the longer I record this stuff, the rantier I get. Oh, there was a question about... uh, Wheat-based cereals such as Golden Puffs give the same metabolic effect as rice-based cereals like Fruity Pebbles. I mean, breakfast cereals are all pretty much equivalent uh, as far as the metabolic effects that you want to get from them. Mm, Another one from the Drum Geek. Is there a recommended amount of and type of fat to include in a carb backload? always been under the impression that you should keep carbs and fat somewhat separate, but in the evening it doesn't seem like it matters as much. Any thoughts? Uh, you, in general, it doesn't matter, especially especially if you're having like one carb backload meal a night because actually you don't really have a mixing of fuels at the mitochondrial level. And that, that's an important thing to try to keep in mind because the carbs are going to absorb really quick and get into your system. The fat is going to take hours. So there's no actual overlap at the mitochondrial level of those two systems competing with each other, especially if you have a single meal at night, which for some versions of carb backloading, that's how it's gonna work out. Now, or if if the meals are spaced appropriately, like you have two meals at night. Uh, Now, where that becomes a problem is you have a mixed diet continuously. Um, That exacerbates all kinds of damage at the mitochondrial level. So in the evening, depending on the number of meals you're trying to eat, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, If you're eating multiple, maybe three meals, then you do want to try to separate your fats out somewhat. 
but I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that because the software is the detail. Like I, I couldn't give you enough details to cover every possible scenario. And the, the general rule of thumb is, well, if you have one meal, don't worry about it. If you have two meals, we'll start to worry about it. And that's not very helpful. If you have three meals, then you really should worry about it. Um, and that also depends on how much muscle mass you have and the type of exercise you're doing. And when you're going to, I mean, so like I can't give you a, um, a specific answer, but there is, I did develop a system to give you a specific answer. Uh, so it's a good, I'm not saying it's not a good question. It is a, it's, it's a very good question. And if you are carb backloading in a way that you can eat one meal at night, then you don't have to worry about it. And that's really, it's really an important point is, you know, to arrange things in such a way that you don't have to worry about the minutia. And I, I think that's a very important part of moving amateur athletes or casual athletes towards their goal as rapidly as possible. Um, also, if somebody's unhealthy, um, moving them towards their goal as rapidly as possible. And you really should only be paying attention to minutia when you are attempting to reach the level of professional athletes. At that point, minutia can become important. Um, or if you're trying to reach the, lean, the extremes of body fat content, let's say, or muscle mass, their minutia becomes important. And then the question is, which minutia? And that's a whole other can of worms. That's where there has to be an entire book just on how the body functions under exercise paradigm paradigms. Um, Kevin Williams, are there any major changes in C CBL1 that I would implement today? Uh, it's a general framework. As best it can be applied by an individual, there's no changes I would make, um, honestly. It's a very good general framework. I, the science did lead me in the correct direction on that. Um, will there be any differences in the optimized diet in terms of carbohydrate timing? Uh, this is from James Earnshaw. And yeah, the optimized, it, it kind of unlocks all the potential. So if you're doing carbonate, you're locked into it. It's trying to structure a diet around like the one day a week scenario, which is what's going to work best for some people like that one day a week is when they can handle things and they don't have to worry about mental problems or, or mental dullness the day after I, I always found and always find on carbonate the day after I'm just more relaxed and more peaceful and focus is much more difficult for me. So th there's all these things I don't have to worry about. And like with carbonate, it's robust enough that during the week, you really don't have to worry about any minutia at all. And that's going to be important for some people. And that's what they're going to want. Carb backloading tries to really lock you into eating only at night, specifically with around your training schedule and trying to make sure that glycogen stores are always recompensated to the point of of your best goals um the optimized like unlocks all of that it it can know like if you have morning workouts then 
there's a way that you can implement carbohydrates that's not necessarily backloading. Um, if you're trying to lose fat, then there's ways that it can modify your diet plan if, say, you're going on vacation. Um, there's all these things that it can unlock, so carbs aren't locked into very specific time periods anymore. Um, and s some people you know, might not m notice variations uh, because they might not have been using carb backloading like f fully to the letter of the law. Or I had one person who read Carb Night and somehow got into the idea that they should eat carbs every three nights and drink a bunch of wine. And that somehow that was Carb Night. And then their takeaway was the diet doesn't work. It's like, at, at least with the software, there's a guide for people to see what's going on and to understand why what they were doing did not work. Um... <laughs> this is the drum geek he's in LA which I expense, uh, experienced the same as this in San Francisco so it's a, a pertinent question I live in LA with a bunch of hostile vegans uh, have you found a graceful way of enlightening these people with conversation without giving into the temptation to punch them uh, of course I could completely go off on the cuff on this one and, um, and say that they are specifically mentally retarded because of their diet choice and let me let me be clear here i'm using the word retarded in the appropriate sense of its meaning which is they are slowed down for some reason in their mental abilities i i think it's absolutely atrocious that retarded is considered a bad word when the only people who really went to bat to get retarded taken out of the lexicon and to shame people who use the word were people with normal kids that other kids were calling retarded. Like retarded kids didn't care. They realized they had some sort of deficit and they were put in situations where they could deal with that deficit and still, you know, progress. And retarded is a much better word than handicapped. And let me tell you why. Because if you're retarded, that just means you're slowed down. And being slowed down implies that you can eventually catch up. So I would much, if I were in that situation, I would much rather be retarded than handicapped because handicapped means you are forever unable to accomplish something. So, so I'm, I'm using the word retarded here in the appropriate sense because vegans will have mental defects that gives them a bit of retardation in their ability to make logical conclusions or to make any type of salient argument. And then what you also have to remember is that these people are zealots. Like vegans are zealots, especially if they're out there being violent or caustic. Then, and, and zealousy has also been shown to be a very, very strong sign of some sort of brain deficiency. So you've got two things you're working against here. You have people who are cognitively unavailable to understand arguments and who are cognitively unavailable to listen to arguments. So there's, there's really not much you can do. Like they want to be crazy vegans. You've just got to let them be crazy vegans. Uh, the best thing to do is to try not to engage them um, because mostly you'll just spark their ire. 
and I, I, I have engaged with vegans before who were not zealots. They were doing it because they thought it was good for the environment or they thought it was good for their health. And these are usually more professionals and they're willing to engage in a conversation. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to inv- engage in that conversation with them. And those can be good conversations. Um, just like I, n- I know some of you may or may not know about my religious predilections, but I, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. But I am, And first and foremost, I will always describe myself as a scientist. And as a scientist, you are anti-dogmatic. And I'll just leave it at that. I am anti-dogmatic. And I did happen to run into a Jehovah's Witness missionary here in uh, Belgrade. And on, that's how I spent my Christmas day, actually. They asked if I would get coffee with them. Of course, they wanted to convert me. And I, I made it very clear that I did not want to waste their time. I was more than willing to have any discussion they wanted. But they had to know they had no chance of converting me in any way whatsoever or getting me to lean towards being a Jehovah's Witness. They accepted that, and we we had a three-hour conversation over coffee, and we were at the extremes, as you can imagine. And it was actually a really good conversation, Um, and I think he took away a lot from it that he had never considered. And also, they very much do not want to be hypocrites, and I showed where some of his presentations were being very hypocritical. Um, and, and, you know, he, he was able to get something from that. And, I, that, and of course, he's still Jehovah's Witness. He's, he's not going to f- flip over to what some might call the dark side. Um, but that's the best you can hope for in people who have become indoctrinated to some dogma. And there's not much more you can hope for other than a conversation where both sides are going to listen. And, and it's okay to say up front, look, whatever comes out of this, I, I can tell you right now that there is very little chance you're going to change my mind. I'm not going to say there's no chance. Maybe you'll say something new that I've never heard before or never considered, and I'll have to think about that. And, and that's, that's how you can try to approach those conversations and those people. And if they're not willing to do that, then you know they're just they they are totally lost. They have a mental incapacity that cannot be overcome with words. Uh, you just need to let them do what they do. Uh, in 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 part two, I talked about uh, Game Changers movie. I mean, it just flat out lied. Now they're doing it for profit reasons, which means they will not listen to what anybody ever says. Like whatever conversation you have with them. Um, my guess is it will probably turn to vitriol in certain circumstances and they, they can never renege on their position because they, they have a financial investment in it. And those people are worth engaging to make look fraudulent like they are, or, you know, as I would say more colloquially to make look stupid. And those conversations have some value if there's an audience that can benefit from that. But if it's a one-on-one conversation, um, you know, you have to engage in that conversation with something that you want from it. And it doesn't have to be personal gain. Like what you might want from it is to just get that person to ask 
themselves one internal question that they'd never asked before, to, to ponder one idea they, that they had never pondered. Um, usually in a, in a situation like that, I want something from it as well. Uh, you know, I am going to be selfish. I, I want in either some way to hear something that I hadn't considered or to reject something in a different way that I hadn't considered or to hear something that totally throws me off kilter that I will have to think about afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, it was a very pleasant conversation over Christmas, even though we were on completely opposite sides of the issue. And um, I, I think he was surprised to meet a physicist who could also quote biblical scripture to him and knew the Bible very well, uh, as long as other uh, religious texts very well. So it made for a really great conversation between us. And uh, it, it never got to a point of hostility or frustration. And, um, you know, neither, it didn't change either of our minds, but I, I think it was a, a good experience for both of us. And in the scenario with vegans, like that, that's the best you can hope for. If you can find somebody who honestly believes that what they're doing is right, and they have a very sufficient set of reasons why they believe that, and what they want to do is not shame you into being a vegan, but they want to convince you that they're right that they have the right opinion. And then it's worth engaging. Uh, but otherwise, your best bet is just to avoid them. You know, in San Francisco, the zealotry is extreme. There, There's really not much you can do. You know, I even had a, a group of vegans who were protesting uh, Thanksgiving outside of Whole Foods uh, start yelling at me because I had a dog, uh, because I owned a dog. And that it wasn't, it was, it was cruel to him. And you've got to step back from it and say, well, why do you think it's cruel? And, and these are the things you can like, why do you think it's cruel? And they'll explain, well, you know, he's supposed to be out in the wild, making his own decisions. I'm like, well, what makes you think he's not making decisions when he's with me? I mean, we, we actually have a cooperative when I walk on the leash with him, like he knows how to signal, signal me to, to tell me that he wants to go a certain way or smell a certain thing that's off of our trajectory. And he, he does, he signals me and then I give him a signal back whether it's okay or we need to keep moving. So the, there's an interplay there. And so he does have some decision-making ability. It's like saying, well, you know, it's, it's evil to have a child because for the first few years of that child's life, you need to assert some control over them. It's like, no, you, you're helping the child to understand how to work in an environment with other people. And that's what I've tried to do with, with Cooper, and that's how I've treated him. And, uh, and so he, he has actually gotten very good at communication. And when we're in the apartment or when we're in coffee shops here, I can take him off the leash and he goes and makes, he does whatever he wants. And he's very well behaved because of how he's treated otherwise. So th that's a point of topic that we got onto. And then the next one's, well, he should be in the wild and living free. It's like, well, for the vast majority of dog breeds, particularly Swedish Valhoons, which is what Cooper is, they're bred in such a way that they can no longer live out in the wild. And because of all the selective breeding over the years, even though we were the instigators of it, one thing we have bred into them is in complex problems, they seek the help of people. And this has been shown in a lot of studies, and that's a huge difference between 
uh, domesticated dogs and wolves, and it's, it appears to be the biggest difference is wild wolves, even with their caretakers, when they experience a problem, they will not ask for assistance, and sometimes they will openly reject assistance. Or if you domesticated dogs, on the other hand, when they encounter a problem, they try to work with people to solve it, or they try to go get help. And so domesticated dogs, most of them cannot live in the wild, so releasing them to the wild would actually be being cruel to them they could not survive uh so if it's a matter of cruelty you know i i'm actually doing the opposite of it i'm giving him a good life where he can have growth mentally and physically and be healthy and not be constrained with you know a terrible owner which is where he came from and i rescued him i didn't like go buy a uh, purebred pup it was just his situation with the breeders of the Swedish Falhoun was he was he was of no value because he's the wrong coloration so they couldn't sell him for show um so that's how he ended up out in a non non-professional dog world um but that's just an example of a, a conversation I had and when those points were made at that point, we had to end the conversation because then they started getting hostile. They didn't want to hear these things. And at that point, you know there's absolutely no way to continue. They, they were trying to engage at first because they, they just assumed they had the upper hand. Uh, and once they realized they didn't, that was the end of the conversation. So those, those are the ways that you should always initially approach people with a different view from yours. And this is pertinent right now in the United States because there's this cancel culture that's going on and whatnot. And this is totally, we're getting off subject, but it's important because this happens in the diet and nutrition and whatever community all the time. People have their set positions and they're stolid. And if you say something they don't want to hear, it's just, it's a vitriol time. And... You know, we've, we've got to realize the freedom of speech in the United States is almost absolute. Like, hate speech in the United States, no matter how you want to define it, is protected under the Constitution. And it's very important that it is, and it's very important that we hear it. And it's important that we hear it so that we can engage with the person saying it to try to understand why they believe it. And even if we don't change their mind we can then address those issues to try to prevent other people from believing it. The freedom of speech, the responsibility is not on the speaker. The freedom of speech puts the responsibility on everybody else who has to listen. And that's the responsibility that you have to take. You have to take the responsibility to listen and you have to take the responsibility to give counter arguments to help that person understand why they're wrong or to prevent other people from coming to those wrong conclusions. Um, And that's why vegans, like, they don't participate in free speech. All the cancel culture doesn't participate in free speech. And they think they're doing a good thing when what they're really doing is just shirking their responsibilities, which... You know, just around the modern world, that's what people really want to do. They just don't want responsibilities. And freedom of speech comes with a massive amount of responsibility from everybody else who's not speaking. And that's what we seem to not understand. Um, so 
what I do encourage in those situations with vegans or anybody else that you disagree with on dog, dogmatic matters, where they may be dogmatic or where you may both need to be dogmatic because there's no way to resolve the conflict. What I really recommend is that you exercise the responsibility heaved onto you by the freedom of speech. And that responsibility is to listen and to engage and to try to encourage them to listen as well and to dissuade their opinions if possible and if not to try to understand why they have those opinions and then if you understand you can move forward from that point and try to dissuade others um and and that's that works across that's a general rule across any dogmatic disagreement um even with vegans It, it it even helps even if they're they're somewhat militant or caustic, it really helps if you can get them to engage with why they believe something. You don't even have to try to change their mind or discuss it. You just, you know, if you can listen, then it, it goes a huge way to allowing you to maybe not help them, but to help other people. And that is another hour, and I did not plan on having uh, quite so long of a rant on uh, social freedoms, uh, but I, th- I think it's important because I think that aspect gets lost and it, it's really a hindrance to science uh, when people don't accept the responsibility incumbent in free speech. And that responsibility, and I want to emphasize this again, is not on the speaker. The responsibility is on everybody else who has to listen. Um, and it's a big responsibility. I mean, it's a huge responsibility. Um, and, and it's, it's one that I, I think we should all bear the burden of and be happy to bear that burden and become very adept at bearing that burden. And it does, it does take skill, uh, which, you know, I still to this day, am, am, am trying to hone that skill because it, it's not easy. You know, you hear stuff that raises your ire. You have to stop and you have to ask, well, why did that make me mad? And then you can possibly have a discussion about it um, if you need to. But anyway, that's another hour down. And man, there's probably maybe another hour of questions. So that's it for this one.